This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Grapes of Hunger, and the authors are Lynn Rosen and Hassan Morabidi. And Lynn joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Lynn. Hi, Steve. How are you? Good to have you with us. We would call you anti-hunger activists, wouldn't we? <laughs> I've been called what? <laughs> yes, yes. You have an outreach program that is all over the world now. Yes, it is. It's Lynn's Kids, and we're in 38 different countries, and we have many, many schools, and we have a lot of schools set up here as Lynn's Kids schools because in New York, our mayor is taking money away from after-school programs. And to me, closing an after-school program is opening a jail or inviting a gang invitation. So it's very important to me to keep these after-school programs open. Well, before we get into hear some of your poetry and learn more about your outreach program, uh, tell us about Hassan and then give us your background. Hassan Morabidi. Hassan Morabidi is an exceptional man. He is from Morocco from a place called Fiki in Morocco. He's a writer and a teacher. He's a teacher first, and he wanted to learn to write poetry, so he asked me to help him. And that's how we got on this venture of Grapes of Hunger. And Hassan is opening a camp in Morocco this summer. It's going to be a Lynn's Kids Camp. And about your background, Lynn? Okay, I'm also a teacher uh, for 25 years. I do some outreach work. I give my time to New York Cares, to United for Action Against Fracking, which is uh, gas drilling. I um, taught in the New York City public school system for a long time, and my favorite passion is being a writer. And, of course, Lynn's Kids Foundation is my outreach. We're, um, we're opening up all kinds of programs for children who are underprivileged and, um, as my friend from India says, the marginally poor children. India, Pakistan, you have three there, Bangladesh. Yeah, Bangladesh, Azerbaijan, I can't even pronounce half of them. Cameroon. Right, Cameroon. And then, and then many Morocco. in Africa, many in yeah. Africa. Right, many, many, many. They need a lot of help there, but I now have a lot in New York because what I'm seeing here is we see a lot of homelessness on the street, and also in New York we see um, not only homelessness, but we have problems with the water, so I'm out there trying to just do my thing to get by. Both you and, and better tomorrow. Both you and Hassan believe that education is the key to knowledge. Exactly, and I have to tell you what Hassan is doing, which I think is the most beautiful thing. I was just telling this to my mother. Hassan Lee's daughter um, goes to school in Morocco, of course, and what happened is that her. Her school was cutting down on teachers, just like we're cutting down in New York. And he, they didn't have an English teacher, and he was just so upset. So he's giving his time voluntarily to teach our class as an English teacher. Now these, so Hassan is like I am. He's, he's just an activist. Now, these camps, tell us about what goes on in these camps. Okay, what we're doing is we're... Connecting, I call it make one, take one. We are globally connecting hearts 
And when you touch somebody else's heart, you are uh, linking and you're going to tell somebody else. And what happens is that they're going to send each other cultural packages, the different camps, and they're also going to share their story. So maybe if somebody is poor in Bangladesh and they're speaking to somebody who is poor in New York, it'll make them realize that other children have the same similarities and differences than they do. And maybe there is hope for tomorrow if they have friends from across the world, especially in today's world with bullying and everything else going on. So we're trying to connect hearts. A lot of hunger in the world, really obviously tragic when it comes to children. Well, exactly, and that's why Hassan Lee and I did this, because in uh, actuality, every six seconds, a child dies. And that's a very scary thing. But it, what is the difference if they die in Africa or if they die in New York? The point is it's a child, and it should not be allowed to happen. So that's why we're trying with our books. And uh, Grapes of Hunger, the proceeds go to Lynn's Kids Morocco. Share with us some poetry. Uh, Both of you are poets, and of course your book has uh, many poems as well as a gallery of photographs. Yes, the gallery of photographs are the photographs from uh, Lynn's Kids Camps all over the world. The poetry was written, of course, by Lynn and Hassan. And uh, we also wrote another book called Once Upon a Time in Hungerland, which will be coming out soon, and um, our third book is Gospel of Love. We're working on it. So, you know, everything is for proceeds for the kids, for the camps, and to try to make it a better tomorrow for them. Well, let's have you read a poem. Okay, and in all fairness, I'm going to read a poem that was written by Hassan Lee and not written by Lynn. I have, I have both. So, um, and I thought, this was a man who started out with four lines and said he couldn't write poetry. And to me, this is absolutely the most beautiful poem. It's called The Dark Side of an Optimistic Human. Once upon a time, and even now, the sky is blue and the stars glow. The sun dots lights and the moon does follow. The seas irritate and the rivers flow. The land was cheerful with green plants on it. People from all walks of life could drink and eat. Children happily climbed trees and picked up fruits. Women noisily went to the river to get rid of clothes that were dirty. Men spent their days tilling their farms. One another they helped with strong hands. Never did they know jealousy or laziness. On the Lord they relied, who never did he miss. Radically, things changed into worse. Sort of people emerged. The honest were cursed. Hot black emotion. Money is the boss. War interest dropped. The poor to the loss. Factories creep on green areas. Exhale death through chimneys. Throw fatal poison in rivers and seas. All steep in selfishness. No one cares. Behold, hence victims are to appear. They groan. Plead. Who can hear? Hunger diseases wrap them in zephyr. Deprived of bread, others swim in beer. There I recall, I was one of those dismal. In slums I lived with mice, I shared all. Parents never knew the path to school. Father a simple soldier, a sentry of a colonel. Vietnam War, the first to go, my father. Obligated he was because he was poorer. Before that to France against the Fuhrer. France triumphed but became miser. With deep wound and war rusty metal, father returned shuffling one sandal. Shame on you, France. What a scandal. He still repeated it till his last fall. 
only earth that dearly welcomed us on the leaky ceiling and streets fuss. Frost was kind, but hunger, God alas, never surrendered and joined the class. Days and nights with shabby books, learning hard on the candle smokes, with mother's eyes and aunts the cooks, when slumbered they poked me with, for- with forks. Days, months, and years elapsed, poor I was in exams life I passed. No support, but fate with me danced. Sworn to help, yet never been helped. Suddenly, Lynn Rosen in my life did talk due to a friend of mine. Thanks, dear Mabarak. She does lighten the world after it was dark. We fight poverty and hunger aboard Lynn's Ark. All over the globe, Lynn's camps will glitter. Morocco, Sierra Leone, Mali, why not Niger? Kids will enjoy happiness and forget anger. All shout loudly, live Lynn, God's messenger. I love that poem. That's it. Well, it's got a beautiful, positive ending, of course, uh, pointing out a lot of uh, injustices of war and just man against man, right? Exactly. When we have war, we have hunger. Yes, yes. And then there's... That's why Hassan had faced poverty all his life, and um, I think that was his cry. And a lot of... The ending, but it was really about his life and what he faced. And a lot of governments in other parts of the world uh, are not helping the people at all. Not at all. I see it here. We have people lying in the street in New York, and I'm still curious to know where are our tourism dollars going? Our mayor is busy spending millions of dollars on a monument for um, 9-11. Now, don't misunderstand me. I think they deserve a tribute. What bothers me is that there are poor people living in the street. Give them a smaller tribute to dead bodies and help the poor. That's how I feel. Now, you travel to all your camps? I, I wish I could afford to. No, I actually uh, was in Oman already, and I will be there for, hopefully, as they would say, inshallah, for the opening of Morocco. I can't go to every camp, but I have good people in place and everything. All volunteers, nobody gets paid. I want to make that a strong point. Everybody is doing this because they have a love of heart. Teaching is a love of heart. And they're doing it to help children, and that's our goal. Share with us one of your poems. Okay, my pleasure. I just have to get here. Okay, this is my favorite poem because this poem, I just read it to my mother too. This is a poem about how I envision the world to be. It's called The Land of Cotton Candy Dreams. In a land of cotton candy dreams, people get along. They love, walk, laugh, cry, togetherness reigns. In a land of cotton candy dreams. Children are free. Beautiful sounds of birds are tweeting. Tintinabulation of sounds so sweet. I am my land, you and yours. Peace is resonant. Though the radiance, which once was so bright, could often be taken from our sight, we must remember a world so beautiful and new, a place where our differences come together as we do. Children, children, come together in every single type of weather, holding hands together as one, a world of cotton candy dreams, holding hands under God's golden sun in a land of cotton candy dreams. In Shalom we shall walk, interesting conversation should be our talk. Yes, let us blend together as we love. Isn't this the way our Lord wanted life to be in his world up above in a land of cotton candy dreams? Well, that's a very positive and paints a picture, paints a good picture of, of obviously what we want for our children. Exactly. See, whereas Hassan Lee is writing what he lived through, I'm writing what I hope to envision in the future world. At this point, I don't see it because we're in so much trouble. 
Now you I mean, also, you know, that's it. That's what the problem is here. But I hope it happens. You have a camp in Washington. Uh, we're trying to set it up with kids first, and we're trying to get it together. We're, oh my God! There are people living in the streets in Washington. They're the Kids Alliance is called. Uh, there are chi- there are hungry people, children, men, women living in the streets. And five minutes away, you have your Congress people who are eating their fat wad lunches while people are lying in the street in Washington. Washington is even worse than New York. It's it's just a horrible sight. On your book cover, you have this poem, Hunger Kills as Men Fight a War, Strips Away Our Dignity, Gives Us Nothing Worth Fighting For. Let's educate and teach the mother. She will teach the sisters and brothers. That's, That's right. That's what Hassan and Lynn believe in. We believe that if you educate the mother, in fact, my camp in Cameroon is only working with women. It's teaching the mothers that they can teach their children. How do you bridge the language differences? Uh, we have interpreters. We have um, volunteers. And basically, you know what? I used to think that's a fabulous question, but I used to feel the same way. But I haven't really encountered a problem with this yet. In all my camps, the people that I'm speaking to, the volunteers, are all speaking beautifully. And if they have to stop and interpret, they do. In fact, in Sierra Leone, the children write beautifully. And they're actually building a school there on their own. The uh, village is setting up, and they're calling it Lynn's Kids. And I never, I never asked for that, but they're doing it on their own, coming from the village elders. They're building a school for the children because the children that were in Lynn's Kids camp scored so well that they felt that they would do even better in a full school, not in a camp. Why do you think so much hunger, especially for children in the world? What what is is well, how do we prevent that? I think that the way that we prevent it is through more education. I think if we educate the children, educate the parents, and also teach the parents, which is a very important point, the food pyramid, and teach them what is good. A lot of these parents are working, and they have to work. But if we teach them nutritionally, sound meals, possibly they'll be able to help their children more. I also think that education should be a priority. We shouldn't be shutting after-school programs. We should be fighting a mayor who doesn't care because he has a lot of money, and we should be opening programs for children and for parents. We need parenting courses to teach both father and mother how to provide for their families, like um, my friend Alison Kamara from Sierra Leone, had a special program. It was called Food on the Table. And uh, that program meant maybe you could afford rent, but you couldn't afford to put food on your table. So, you know, people economically, with all the job losses that we have and the unemployment, it's very hard to live. And people at hard times do desperate things. And that's not what we want to see. We want to see education, which will help the mothers, the fathers, and the children. And that's the way through this is education. The title of the book, Grapes of Hunger, the authors and poets, Lynn Rosen and Hassan Morabidi. Lynn, tell us how to get your book. You can get the book through www.authorhouse.com or by going to www.lynnskidsfoundation.org. And then you'll see the whole site and you can really enjoy it. Thank you very much, Lynn, for being with us on Author Talk. Thank you, Steve. 
You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Show me the money! Okay, we will. We're going to teach you how to tell your money where to go. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. Learn how to be a savvy investor from someone who has your best interest at heart. Pam Otten is a financial advisor who loves to help successful business owners and entrepreneurs understand the mysteries of the investment world. And she's not afraid to share that knowledge. Pam is an unashamed Christian and qualified kingdom advisor, which means she's trained and committed to integrating biblical principles into her financial advice. Pam believes investing isn't rocket science. This is the financial advisor who's in your corner and truly understands and cares about you and helping you achieve your goals. Securities and advisory services are offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA, SIPC. It's Intelligent Investing with Pam Otten on Toginet. It's time to get your boots on. We've a boot campaign with hosts Megan Roth and Bailey Gray, Thursdays at noon, 1 central on Toginet.com, sponsored by Austin Bank. The whole point of the boot campaign is to continue the true grassroots initiative developed by a group of patriotic women known as the Boot Girls. Inspired by the true story of Marcus Luttrell, the lone survivor, the Boot Girls got started with celebrities but want every American to get your boots on by purchasing a pair of the Give Back Combat Boots. The campaign's motto is simple. When they come back, we give back. For more on the boot campaign, go to the website, bootcampaign.com. The Boot Campaign Get Your Boots On Show will feature discussions on current events impacting the lives of active duty and retired military, interviews with our nation's war heroes, medical professionals, and celebrities who have put their boots on. Do your part and join us for The Boot Campaign Get Your Boots On Show with Megan Roth and Baby Gray, Thursdays at noon, 1 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Death Threats from British Petroleum and the Life Beyond the Grave. And the poet is Henry Wells Sullivan. And Henry joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Henry. Um, Hi, Steve. How are you? Well, we're going to talk about your relationship with your wife, Jillian. And, of course, this book is dedicated to her and your poetry about her, and also some tragedies that she was connected to because of her devotion to, I guess, the environment and, and other causes. But first of all, let me read what you have written about your book for everyone. This is a book of poetry I wrote to save my wife's memory from extinction. I couldn't bear the thought that our story of star-crossed lovers who almost beat the odds should be lost and forgotten at the time of my own demise. Books on the loss of a spouse are mostly written by women, but this book is a widower's reflection on the death of his beloved wife. Jillian Richardson. Tell us how you met Jillian and kind of the, well, it's kind of right out of Hollywood, your story. (laughs) Yes, it is. It is in a way, isn't it? um, Well, I was a... Freshman at Oxford in um, November of 1961, and uh, I met her by accident, fell in love with her quite literally at first sight, and uh, found a way to uh, smuggle myself into the same party where she was going to on Boar's Hill, and danced with her, got her name, telephone number, 
And this November the 4th, 2011, is actually going to be the 50th anniversary of that that event. And uh, the uh, relationship was very intense. And uh, after some years, we were coming close to that point of decision about getting married. And unfortunately, her, her mother seemed to take, have an aversion towards me. And eventually, more or less, gave Gillian an ultimatum. She said, I, if you marry that Harry, never darken this door again. And Gillian, being a dutiful daughter in that older tradition, felt that she could not sacrifice her family. So she found a man who suited her parents better and married him and had his children. And I married someone else in the United States and had children, but um, she was always the love of my life. I think I was always the love of her life. And when I dedicated a book on the Beatles to her in 1995, as a reminder of the way it was, that was the dedication, uh, we got together again and uh, we were married in 1999. So we had just 10, 10 years of married life and they were the happiest years of my life. So, of course, then I had to deal with the fact that I lost her again. But that's what the book's about. In September of 2009, Gillian died of breast cancer. Yes, that's correct. Well, as you look at your time together with her and then you look at her philosophy, uh, tell us why you tied two tragic events into your book, uh, poetry about these tragic events, to be a book about Jillian. Tell us about those events. Yes, yes. It, it, you're, you're right, Steve. It doesn't seem self-evident at first glance, but uh, she was raised on a farm. She was... Um, has, her career was built around animal husbandry. Uh, she was a mink farmer, and um, she uh, <clears throat> bred dogs and tropical fish. She worked at Audubon Zoo as a volunteer here in New Orleans, and essentially was, loved, loved the natural world and the animal world, and uh, was constantly distressed to see it polluted, degraded, and destroyed. And uh, Shell, for example, wanted to put a facility out in the Gulf, which would have warmed up the water around. She made her sign, went down and protested in New Orleans, and that plan was shelved, and it, she and many other people. So th th there's a long history of crusading for the environment uh, with Gillian. That's, that was a part of her. And um, it, it gradually came to affect me. She, she really radicalized and politicized me on the issue of, of um, green philosophy um, because I had been more uh, indifferent, I would say, prior to that. So when the upper big branch mine blew up, it was a methane explosion, killed 29 men, April of 2010, then almost uh, 10 or 15 days later, as we know, um, another methane explosion on Deepwater Horizon, um, and 11 more men killed. 
uh, to say nothing of the wreckage and destruction from the oil spill. And um, suddenly these these stimuli coming together, grieving for her, the rage over the loss of her, the grief and the rage at these completely preventable accidents, safety being utterly ignored, they just drove me into a frenzy. And um, I started writing I, one poem after another. Uh, for five months, I, it I hardly took my eyes up off the page. I don't remember anything about those five months, but at the end of it, there was the book. Yeah, you write that you were driven blindly into a white heat of creation that lasted for 20 weeks. Well, it's, yes, that sounds melodramatic, but it's nothing less than the truth. Um, everything else was... Uh, Mechanical, you know, just go through day. I mean, it, it, I only rested when the book was done. Well, your book is broken into uh, five books, as you put it. Book one, two, three, four, five. Let's hear uh, a few uh, examples of these poems. Uh, why don't you share the first one with us, uh, Henry, and then make a comment about it? Yes, I will. Um, I think a good place to begin is with the dedication poem. Uh, prior to the um, five books that you just described, and addressed directly to her, a dedication to Gillian, weeping beyond the grave. And um, we have to imagine her on the other on the other side, still weeping and regretting these catastrophes happening on earth. My sweetest, dearest love. Where are you now? I've missed you so these eight months since you're dying. And sometimes when I try to weep, I can't. And sometimes I break down weeping without trying. And this is the very day you breathed your last, the five and twentieth day of last September. How can the whole world not remember with your poor cremated ash for us a glowing ember? I know you're with me in your subtle body, and sometimes friends will say you're looking down on me, or walking by my side, still hand in hand, as long before, in Oxfordshire and Nottingham. I don't believe them any more than you do. But one thing I am certain of on this 25th of May is how you'd feel about the gulf you once defended, bearing a protest sign, don't leave the gulf an empty shell. And now another one has really messed it up. Those breezes catch the swell of brownish waves and plumes of 20 miles fill ocean caves and turtles die gasping on their barrier graves. I know you'd give your life a second time, sweet Gillian, to turn the Derrick clock back, make it right, upright, be strong to save, thus cease your weeping from beyond the grave. But now I hear your voice. I also must be brave and give you back the voice you once gave me when first we fell in love, in poetry. So set your verse flowing, weeping from beyond the grave. That's right from the heart, isn't it? It is, Steve, yes. Yes, and that's kind of speaking right from the heart. You write that Beethoven said, it comes from the heart, may it go to the heart. Indeed, indeed. 
Yes, indeed. And that's your purpose. Indeed. And uh, perhaps if you, I could write, read you another poem. Please. It's um, a, a logical segue. Uh, this is uh, called Deepwater Horizon, um, the section and this first poem in it. And uh, there's a, a, a short epigraph. Uh, I think it's sometimes called the Naval Hymn. Anyone will recognize the wording, but let me just read the epigraph first and then the poem, which is, of course, of a much more satirical and uh, angry nature. Deep water horizon. Eternal Father, strong to save, whose arm doth bind the restless wave, who bids the mighty ocean deep its own appointed limits keep. O hear us when we cry to thee, for those in peril on the sea. In the first place, consider, at 5,000 feet, there's no horizon, just a murky floor. And if you took the time to bore some more, you'd realize that horizontal means the line where earth and sky appear to meet. The only line down near your sunken rig is where the saline slime of land and sea describe right angles to the vertical. Oh, and aptly describe your board as well that corporate slime which brands itself BP. Still clueless? Visible horizon is the circle where the planet's surface touches a cone whose vertex is at the observer's eye. Methinks you're in deep water now, BP, and safe observance, not your cup of tea. I'd say roughly a mile out of your depth. Oh, and let's not forget that tangent line at which crude oil spews out the stunning breadth of your naive and numbskull drilling gamble, leaving marine life and our gulf in shambles. Then there's the last line on this basin's bottom. It's called, you guessed it, yes, the bottom line. How much will this adventure pump the profit? How much will BP's CEO make off it? My take? You're doomed to never rally from it. You had no power to bind the restless wave. You've made the Gulf of Mexico a grave, and all your board the reputation of a knave. Eternal Father, hear us when we cry to thee for those in such needless peril on that sea. Well, you say, Henry, that English poetry is still vital and a powerful medium for communicating the anguish and the pity of contemporary life on the one hand and for condemning lawless corporate abuses in the 21st century America on the other. Yes, I did say that. Well, that's obviously, uh, you can really feel that in your poetry. I mean, I, 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 that's one beautiful thing about poetry. You suddenly see things maybe that you didn't see before. Mm-hmm. Indeed. And of course, uh, poetry tends by its character to be more dense, uh, lapidary, right. and uh, we hope memorable. Very concentrated, a lot of emotion. Yes, sir. Why don't you read another one for us? I will, happily. Um, th- this was a poem that cost me enormous difficulty. I started it five times and eventually thought I'd have to give it up. Um, it's called To Jillian Again, and it's, it's something like a bookend to the first one I just re- wrote, read you. 
And the, the uh, epigraph in this case is a, um, a quotation from Hamlet. The ghost says, Do not forget, this visitation is but to whet thy almost blunted purpose, as if giving me a, myself a kick in the pants to f get down and finish this poem. So this is called To Gillian again. My sweetest, dearest love, where are you now? I've missed you so these bitter long twelve months. I asked that question once before and had no answers, only gestures, pools of grief. But now I see more clearly where you are. Your ruling spirit built its nest in me. And every issue we would ever moot is now resolved in your eternal favor. When cars were caravels, you were the queen who occupied the driving seat while I sat blithely, reading maps and routes beside you, some Prince Henry, the navigator. Now I'm the driver, research done before. Like you, I do my daily exercise. I clear up clutter that I've made and throw out messy crumpled Kleenex once they're used. I stand up straight and smile at total strangers, give to charity and fight against pollution. Even the breakfast that I mocked in you whole grains, fresh fruits, unsweetened soy milk fiber has passed to be my everyday repast. In puzzle times, I seek out your advice and always know what your advice would be. I practice disciplines I fought against in you, but now can marshal no resistance. Your fearsome superego is my own. And there's the answer to that tearful question. Where are you now, sweet Jillian? Where now? Part of you thrives in me each living day, and in my actions, you still lead the way. Well, as you say, Henry, there are many unforgettable characters in these poems. The greatest of them, of course, is Gillian herself. Indeed. The title of the book, Death Threats from British Petroleum and the Life Beyond the Grave, the poet is Henry Wells Sullivan. Henry, tell us how to get your book. Well, um, right now, the easiest way is to go to Amazon.com. Um, it's not expensive. I think the soft cover version is $10.80. There's, there's an e-book version, slightly more expensive. And then there's a hard um, cover, which has a very handsome uh, dust jacket with family photos and uh, a more extensive uh, comment um that'd be more like a sort of a book to give as a gift but um uh, author house is the public publisher it can be gotten through them there are bloomington indiana and uh I, i'm i have a website that's going to be set up within the next month uh which will also have material on the book but it's not it's not hard to get hold of henry wells sullivan thank you very much for being on author talk Thank you, Steve. Thank you very much. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Information is power, the power to change your life. So be here for Education to Excellence. Some of the most valuable information you may ever receive will be shared with you 7 p.m. Eastern every Tuesday night with Education to Excellence with your host, Bruce Beichman. 
You'll benefit from insightful shows featuring guests that are proven experts in their field. Little-known facts on how to improve your health by making one very simple change in your morning routine. If you're a high school graduate or working adult and a bachelor's, master's, or doctorate degree from an accredited college would change your life, you won't want to miss this. Education to excellence. Shift your career into high gear without ever attending a traditional college class. Learn investment strategies from proven experts who have a track record of helping normal individuals build abnormal wealth. Check out their website, education2excellence.com. Then join us for the show, Education to Excellence, with your host, Bruce Bikeman. Tuesday nights at 7 Eastern, 4 Pacific on toginet.com. Fertility. It's an extremely personal subject. Tune in Monday nights at 9, 8 Central for the Fertility Forum with infertility psychotherapist and expert Phyllis Martin on toginet.com. This is the show about infertility, gaining support, and information. Phyllis will assist you in navigating the disappointments and decisions that often accompany the difficult journey from diagnosis to conception, pregnancy to parenthood. She is passionate about her work and is an expert in the donor egg field, bringing both her personal and professional experience to all she does. Ms. Martin has extensive experience in helping patients cope with infertility, pregnancy loss, adoption, surrogacy, miscarriage, pregnancy termination, and creative family building. She knows what you're going through, and she's here to help. It's the Fertility Forum with your host, Phyllis Martin, Monday nights at 9, 8 Central on Tugginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Tales from the Tailgate, from the fan who's seen them all. And the author is Stephen Corivo, and Steve joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Steve. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me on. Well, this is really going to be fun. You're going to take us all over the country into football games that you have visited. We're talking, everyone, about 412 football games and counting that Steve <laughs> has attended, and he's still married. <laughs> Right, right. Twenty-two years. The challenge to do this, of course. (laughs) Of course. But like Chris Schenkel said from ABC College Football, what better way to spend an autumn afternoon? And that's in your blood, isn't it? Oh yeah, and I've lived with that mantra since I I started doing this. You know, watching those games as a kid, I always remembered that that saying, and it kind of grew with me uh, beyond my college years to to go out and enjoy the experience of being at the games, uh, going beyond just sitting on the couch at home and watching them. So it all started back when your dad took you to the game, I guess, and other family members. Well, yeah, my, my, my first game that, that I started with in the book, basically, is because it was the Army-Navy game back in 1972 uh, with my brother, my sister, my father, and I in a, a relatively very warm day in Philadelphia that time of year. And uh, that was the first major game between two major uh, colleges I'd seen play in person. So that started it. You you just couldn't uh, get enough. That's Yeah, that started it. Uh, I had to get even a little bit before that, so I was happy to get to that one for the first time. But yes, it definitely grew from there. So your book covers how many games and how many teams? Uh, the book is 100 short chapters about the 120 teams that exist in what they call the Football Bowl subdivision today. And, of course, you probably have some uh, 
favorite teams, uh, favorite games that you still talk about? Well, I, I grew up as a Notre Dame fan, and one of my, my first few chapters there is called uh, Turncoat and Burnout, because after the Army-Navy game in 72, two years later, I, I was a member of the Brigade of Midshipmen. Now, I didn't graduate from Navy. Um, I wasn't really the engineering type, so I, I, uh, I transferred after a certain point in time, but for two years, I, I went to Navy, and one of the first games I had seen uh, my plea beer, as they call it, was against Notre Dame, and it was my first Notre Dame game. But here I was, part of Navy, and it just, you know, you're kind of under orders, but in the meantime, you were part of that, that organization, and I, I rooted for Navy, and I've basically been a Navy fan since, and since then as well, I'm, I'm primarily a Navy fan and a Penn State football fan, as I've had season tickets with friends of mine for about almost 25 years uh, going up there to see Penn State play as well. This book is also an interesting view of a man who is changing his life as he grows up, uh, uh, just showing different perspectives and, of course, your experiences uh, from a high school student to a college student to bachelorhood to married life. Exactly, exactly. So it's changing perspective you know, over time, and as you can see, over time I've been able to, to travel a little bit more as well, you know, working for uh, in business and accumulating frequent flyer miles it gave me some flexibility as well to to take some trips uh, outside the, the the northeast and and the south in general where I originally started going to most of my games and I'm sure you've taken your kids along with you your wife along with you to some of those games sure my my wife uh you know she's not an avid football fan but we've had chances to to travel she's gone with me to uh Las Vegas uh, Colorado California and my son, who's, who's grown up, uh, he's now 16 years old playing high school football himself, but he's gotten to games with me. And, and he, um, he and I generally we put together several bowl trips over the last five years. We go to three to four bowl games during the uh, holiday season, kind of different venues around the country for that. And my, my daughter, who is now a freshman at the University of South Carolina, says, Dad, you have been an influence on me. I do want to go to a, a big college football school when I go to college. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a lot of fun and uh, such a, a unique perspective, obviously, from all these experiences that you've had. Well, before we get some of your views of the way the sport is being played today and uh, even talk about some of the serious things, some of the scandals that unfortunately are going on, why don't you give us a, a couple of examples of some of your favorite games? Okay. Um, one of my one of the best games. When people ask me this question, what's the best game you've ever been to? Back in 1998, I was at the Syracuse Virginia Tech game up in Syracuse, New York, in the Carrier Dome. Um, and this game started off as a typical game of what you know as Beamer ball. You know, Frank Beamer's the head coach of his specialty teams, and there were big plays throughout the game. And Virginia Tech, in particular, a long touchdown run, a, a block punt for a touchdown, um, an interception return, an intercepted. Uh, extra point for a two-point conversion return, and at the end, by towards the end of the game, four minutes left, Syracuse had the ball deep in their own territory, and in several situations, of course, Donovan McNabb was the quarterback then. He converted some uh, fourth-down situations. They continued to run down to the end of the field. He got he got sick to his stomach along the sideline during the drive. 
Um, but he got the team down to the one-yard line, and on the very last play, with you know, no time remaining, he, he rolled to his right, uh, turned to his left, and, and lofted a touchdown pass the opposite side of the end zone to his tight end, Stephen Bromowski, who came down with it for an exciting 28-26 win. And that was a, uh, a classic game throughout. Uh, another one was um, in my, my chapter called Upset, 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 because it's basically about three times I've seen the University of Louisville get upset, but the exciting game uh, in that chapter is when they placed, played against Army up at West Point. On the Thursday night game, kind of crummy weather up there as usual on a Thursday night in a dark, dreary place. But uh, Army, of all things, you know, went big in the first half, was up by almost 46-14 at the half, I believe. And the second half was all Louisville. They came up and tied that up in the last play of the game. Game went to overtime, my first overtime experience ever, and back and forth it went a cup for a couple of scores until uh, Army basically knocked the pass down in the end zone on a, 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 a touchdown attempt and won that game 59-52, the, the highest scoring football college football game I'd ever seen. So the, those are two exciting ones. And then there's kind of a fun one to tell also that this is very memorable to me as I'd been uh, trying to plan a trip to uh, uh, the, the Red River Shootout down in down in Texas between uh, Texas and Oklahoma, and I have a uh, former college roommate who had gone to grad school at Texas, and we were trying to get tickets. It wasn't working out, so this was later on when I really started to look at the uh, opportunities to to see every team play at least one. So when that was kind of falling through, and I wasn't, I'm not, you know, I'm on a tight budget. I'm not looking to pay scalping price tickets for a big game, and that particular year that game was. Um, I started to look at, well, where, where else could I go where possibly there's, where I've got the frequent flyer miles, I can go someplace. Uh, what, what's the best opportunity to see two teams play? And there were two teams that, you know, I, I, I never have a really good chance to see, but I had the frequent flyer miles, and uh, Louisiana in particular is uh, one of the more expensive places to fly to from my area. But I went to the game between the University of Louisiana Monroe, uh, playing at the University of Louisiana Lafayette, and both teams were 0-6. So this was the time I said, okay, I've got the frequent flyer miles. I've been to Lafayette. I know there's some inexpensive hotels down there. I have a general idea where the, where the stadium is. I don't even need to rent the car. I think I can walk to that stadium. So I planned that. I did that. I went down there, and, you know, my, my first couple of, as I'm watching this game, it's unfolding. So I can't believe I'm really here. You know, I can't believe I'm really here. And then uh, it turned out to be a tremendous game between two 0-6 teams. As, and you can read this story in the book, too, as Monroe defeated Lafayette 45-42, which started a slow, dull kind of game into a great shootout and a fun place to be. Now, you've got a friend who's now 85, uh, and you attend games with him. Uh, tell us about what he's been up to. Oh, yeah, that, that's a fun story, yeah. But one of my, my target schools to get to see play uh, about five or six years ago was was the San Diego State University. And I'd remembered in a, in a Sports Illustrated article a few years before, there was an article about a fellow named Tom Abels who'd been to almost every San Diego State game since 1946. So I I contacted the school. My brother lives in California up in the, in the Long Beach area. So I contacted him. That was a Thursday night game, and San Diego State was uh, hosting University of Texas El Paso. Again, two teams that I'd never seen play before. 
So I plan to go to that. My my brother, whose wife at the time was a UCLA grad, so that'd be a Saturday game, kind of a a left coast doubleheader, I'd call it. But anyway, I contacted uh, San Diego State. I told them that I'd read about this person named Tom Abels, and maybe it'd be nice to meet with him since I, you know, he and I had similar similar goals going on. And by email, Tom contacted me two days later and said, "Hey, come on out. When you come out, let me know." Um, I've got 20 season tickets for my family and friends. If I have a few extras, uh, come and sit with us. And it worked out that way. And it was a great time. Met Tom. Tom's been to, he's been, matter of fact, last year he got to his 700th uh, uh, San Diego State game. And they awarded him the game ball the week after when they played a home game. So uh, he, he, he missed two games and since 1946. My goodness. <laughs> Over 700 games. Oh, yeah. Well, you've got some strong feelings about what you see at the college levels, this football level that so many enjoy, but there's some real problems there too, is aren't there? Yeah, yeah, and that's that's part of the problem. That's, that's that kind of you know sets me back a little bit. Um, you know, the greed, the scandals, the things going on there kind of upsets the game for what I think it was really meant to be. And, and granted, I I know I'm. Kind of fool myself a little. I know there's there's money involved and so forth, and there's the the step up to the pros. But to me, the game and the, and the teams and college football mean more more to me than just that. And I'm, hopefully, other people you know feel the same way. And uh, I think I, I mean I have some of my own ideas about how the uh, they can we can over they can overcome some of these situations. But we'll see what happens. It depends on um, the strength and the leadership, I think, within the NCAA. What do you love most about football? What What is the, you know, what's the number one thing you just love about it? Oh, I think it's just the the passion that surrounds it is that, you know, the games are revving up and it's one school against another. And it's that, as they say, the electricity in the air and that feel for going out on the team and, and going out on the field and, and, and giving it the all to to beat the other guy on the other side of the field. But it's just that, that passion and desire and enthusiasm that surrounds that, that whole activity. How do you think the game of football can be improved? Um, as far as, well, a couple, well, for college football in particular, of course, I think, and I think a lot of people agree on this already, that instead of this BCS situation is going to a playoff system. And I really, my, my feeling is I think the NCAA could resolve a lot of the issues that are out there right now with the scandals and so forth by saying, you know, by pulling back that, pulling back the opportunity to say, hey, we're going to put together a playoff, you know, and my feeling is there's more money in that than anything else they can do, yet they've got to get, I'd say, the media, the, the bowl systems, uh, the conferences themselves to kind of draw back and, and by, by kind of taking over the situation say, we're going to have a playoff, um, and from that, Everybody's going to share the, the the benefits of that equally, and if you don't want to abide by those rules, <laughs> you don't you don't get to share in it. And uh, you know there'd be a nice I think think of a playoff system I propose with eight teams basically, and you could rotate again. There's a four major bowl games every year, and make them part of that playoff system. Plus the fact I would love to see them do something along the lines of get rid of these bowl contracts they've got with all the conferences. And go to something similar with with basketball, and that they can have a bowl selection committee, line up teams with equivalent records, and based on the geographical uh, locations, and, and put that together. And I, I think it'd be much more fun for the fans. I think it'd be more worthwhile for the schools, 
and in the end, I think everybody would benefit. And again, they'd have that stick to say, "Hey, abide by you know, here's a great opportunity. We're going to make a lot of money together. That's part of that goal, and let's let's abide by these rules that we put in place." Well, here's the big question for you: uh, How in the world did you get to the Rose Bowl? Compliments of Kermit the Frog. <laughs> <laughs> a great one. That. Uh, that's for that's from ties going back when I was five years old. I mean, I have a friend I went to uh, grade school with, Jim Lewis, and uh, back in 1993, when Penn State was joining the Big Ten, uh, Jimmy was working for uh, Henson Productions from Muppets in New York City, and I live here in North Jersey where we grew up. And when they were relocating his organization out to Burbank, California, he said, "Well, Jimmy, you know, I, I hate to see it go, but..." You know, when you're out there and Penn State beats Ohio State and Michigan in the Big Ten, they may come out, we'll go to the Rose Bowl. And he said, okay, we'll see what happens. Well, two years later it happened, and I called Jimmy and I said, uh, hey, Jim, for the Rose Bowl, you think we can do anything? And he said, well, I have a contact. Um, let me talk to him. How many tickets do we want? So with me, my buddy John Massimillo, I've got the season tickets without here. He's a graduate, and all. he'd love to come out and... I said, you know, Lori wants to come out, but my, my wife, but she doesn't want to. She doesn't want to go to the game. Like she wants to go. She'd love to go to the Rose Bowl parade. She said that. So he said, I'll see what I can do. So I'll, I'll probably call you back next week. He said. Well, he called me back the very next day. He said, Yeah, I called this guy, and he said, uh, I said I have friends from back east. I want to come out to the, the Rose Bowl. Can you help us out with tickets, possibly? He said, Sure. How's halfway up at fifty yard line? Oh my goodness. <laughs> so. Uh, Jimmy said, "Well, yeah, great. How much do you want for him?" And Jim said, "No, no. You, you, you." He said, "You, your guests are mine." So it turned out the whole deal was <clears throat> Jimmy, who was writing for Henson Productions, was representing at the time artistically Kermit the Frog, <laughs> and um, his contact was a fellow named Bud Greist. And that particular Bud was the vice chairman of the Tournament of Roses committee. Well, the following year, Bud would be the chairman. The chairman each year gets to select the grand marshal of the parade. His grand marshal choice was Kermit the Frog, so that's the big secret we, we couldn't let out. There <laughs> the it is, folks. And, well. this, uh, and this, so that's how we, we got out there. I mean, we we paid our way out, of course, to fly out there. We stayed with with Jimmy and his wife and uh, went to the parade. And my one-and-a-half-year-old daughter, you know, she remembered it for many years as uh, the parade is fair uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. and flowers. And then we, we had our own parking, and we went down to the Rose Bowl. They opened up the barricades. We had... A, luncheon with the in the, this big bubble tent with uh, Big Ten and Pac-10 officials, and then we met with Bud Greist up at the 50-yard line. We, we presented him with a Penn State shirt, but of course he hit it. He wasn't going to wear it there and be, <laughs> and, uh, you know, he, he couldn't show any uh, any favoritism, but uh, we had a great time. Penn State won. They finished the season undefeated. It was kind of an exciting game. The only disappointment was Nebraska was undefeated at the end of the season, too, and Penn State finished number two. Well, there's so just... All, compliments of kermit the frog there's just one of the tales from the book tales from the tailgate from the fan who's seen them all stephen corivo stephen tell us how to get your book uh several ways one go through my my website which is collegefootballfan.com it not only has a link to the book but it tells about my history my schedules and i run each week about the particular game i just went to and on that link, it takes you to AuthorHouse.com, the publisher. You can also get it right now online at both BarnesandNoble.com as well as Amazon.com. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for being with us on Author Talk. Okay, Steve. Thank you very much.